Sabrina for uh, offering to have a little um, girl to girl chat <laughs> uh, about uh, about the world of health policy and advocacy and systems management uh, um, for for uh, for the period of time that I've been doing this kind of work, which is almost close to 30 years. Um, and I guess everybody gets into something for a particular reason. Um, some people really just want a good job that makes a lot of money and is fairly, you know, easy to do and does and leaves them a lot of time for other things. Um, and I, and I, I think I probably started out somewhere there. Uh, I certainly did was a lawyer, and I did expect to practice law, and I did practice law for a while. Um, I don't think I actually ever thought about it as as really a huge money maker, but I knew it was going to, you know, supposedly give me kind of comfortable existence. Um, but I didn't like practicing law. Um, I found that. Uh, it, it's really corporate. I mean, it's really corporate. And it's, you know, cutthroat in terms of getting clients, keeping clients, uh, charging them as much money as you can for the work you do for them. And that's not really what I ever thought the law was supposed to be. I thought it was really some way about justice and uh, helping people who had been unjustly treated and, um, you know, right right over might kind of and definitely that was not my experience of it so I went into the private sector of very large corporations uh, that used my legal uh, skills um, as an it was really a good entree to a lot of other different types of jobs and ultimately I ended up doing what is, was then called human resources jobs. I don't, not sure what they call them today, but um, I, I managed, uh, or uh, I managed the departments that looked after employees, basically, um, from their benefits to their salaries to their, you know, human rights complaints to the whole anything that came up. And I liked that work actually. Uh, I thought that was it was quite rewarding. Um, and I jumped from a couple of organizations to another because even though the work's rewarding, the you know, it's not always the best environment and, and people change. And so you change and, you know, that's how it goes. But in principle, I, I was I would have been quite satisfied to keep doing that. Um, in 1994, um, I uh, was diagnosed with HIV. I should have been diagnosed with it 10 years earlier um, because I had been going to my doctor for literally for 10 years, um, complaining of mainly stomach related problems. And as we know now, most of our gut and our immune system is in the gut. And so what was happening was this virus was chewing away at me in there um, and um and my doctor just it never occurred to her that a woman could even have HIV. So finally, it was a, a, a man friend of mine who said, you know, you might just want to do that. And when I went to try to get uh, a test from her, she said, well, 
you've only got about a 2% chance of this being HIV, but all right, kind of, you know, rolling her eyes. And sure enough, of course, it was. Uh, it was clear to me in a heartbeat that the cause of my HIV was my ex-husband. Um, and this is a man from, he was a man from South America. Um, he, I went to work one day married to one man and I came home married to another for no reason that I could understand. I mean, he became, became now I do, of course, became profoundly depressed. He just, he just like was just living there, I'm sure, in shock. Um, but that, you know, that only became clear much later. Um, he never did uh, disclose to me that he had HIV. Um, and we divorced finally because you can't really live with somebody who's just sitting there watching the TV from morning to night. It's not much of a marriage. And um, and it was only after that that I was diagnosed and I disclosed to him, um, knowing full well that that really, you know, he ought to have been doing the disclosing. So uh, and even then, oh, uh, no, at that point he was in hospital, very sick. And he said, oh, yes, my doctor told me I was supposed to phone you and let you know that I have HIV. And I thought, mm, you know, it could have been a little earlier. So I was in shock, like I'm sure everybody's in shock. Uh, and I knew that we had no drugs for this disease, not to treat, not to cure, not even to keep away some of the infections that we got as a result of having a low immune system. So. I thought I was pretty much a goner. And my doctor told me I had probably two years to live based on the the um, downtrend of my um, CD4 cells, which are the helper cells that tell the killer cells to go, go off and kill stuff. So, um, but for some reason, um, and I, I think this is still true of me, that I, I always plan for the worst, but hope for the best. So, um, you know, and and I think that's that's been a that's helped me a lot. Um, you know, so I got involved with once I got past the sort of shock, and once I found myself a very good doctor, of course, in the United States, um, who was working on the first combination therapies, which he promised me were going to be available in two years. Um, I oh. I'll, uh, in the, in about two years, um, you know, he gave me sort of hope. And he also uh, gave me a lot of good information and even medications to keep away these opportunistic infections, which really killed off a lot of people before they had a chance. So sure enough, he kept me alive and he told me which of the three uh, combinations of drugs were really working. Uh, in the lab and which not so much. So um, so I went on the drugs that he proposed. Uh, one of them was through a clinical trial um, uh, for which I'm very grateful. Uh, the other two were marketed and, you know, were put on the market for sale and were finally reimbursed by governments. While, while that was going on, we got those drugs through special access programs from the companies. So, so it, during this two years, I um, got very much involved with um, all the AIDS activist organi organizations. I started there um, and, and 
we were activists in the in the in the true sense of the word, I think. Um, you know, we stormed government buildings, we, you know, did die-ins all over the road. We once tried to storm the U.S. Embassy. <laughs> you know, we did, we did a little bit of everything. I once got thrown out of a very large luncheon meeting uh, where uh, Jean Chrétien was starting his second um, try for the Premier, Prime Ministership, and this was his first stop on way. And so when two of us stood up in the middle of this room and shouted that he ought to renew the HIV strategy, which was not in his plan, um, at the next stop, whoever were his advisors said, do you need these little, like, really? Do you need these people bugging you? It's like no money at all. This is my conversation. You know, my side of what I think the conversation went like, that's not very much money. You know, just just give it to them and then they'll leave us alone. We don't need the trouble. Sure enough, he landed at Frederick, New Brunswick and announced that he was adding it to his um, to his portfolio. And we, of course, we were very happy. Um, so, 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 yeah. In the early years, it was activism. There was one rule of activism for Canadians, um, and uh, America. You know, we let other countries define it in whatever way they want. The one thing we never did was anything ill. Well, I mean, they did illegal things like trying to get into the U.S. embassy, but, uh, but that was kind of, you know, nothing violent. We didn't do, we didn't uh, deface anybody's property. Um, we didn't, you know, do any kind of violence to anybody anytime. So that was like our kind of, you know, that was our bottom line um, was we were not going to do that. Another thing I think it's important to point out and particularly in the work we're doing in oncology today, I was often asked as a woman with HIV, when, and of course I was always advocating for more funds to do more research and you know get more drugs and so more people could stay alive. And I was really often asked, well, so are you saying that you think breast cancer gets too much money and some of that money should go you know, to to women with HIV. And I've and I absolutely denounced any suggestion that I was promoting that. I have always believed that everybody needs to get what they need when they need it. And so I would stand up behind any any patients who needed access to necessary treatments, whoever they were. So um so I that's how I answered, um, which probably wasn't that satisfying for the commentators, but but it was the truth. I'm not I'm not throwing other diseases under the bus because I've got a bad disease. That's ridiculous. Anybody who does that, I'm not so sure. So um so I I, I went to a lot of research conferences, um, including some many where Tony Fauci was speaking. And I only mention him because he came back into vogue <laughs> during the pandemic. I, I thought to myself, you're still here? I'm still here. What the heck? What's going on here? <laughs> We're mad. How many pandemics do we have to go through together? So, but he was really actually a very 
very nice man and very approachable. And oftentimes we would, we, our groups would disagree with analyses that he'd made in some of his science. And he was quite prepared. You know, he had, didn't have the kind of ego that, you know, you're, I'm the doctor and you're just whoever you are. Um, so I actually, there's a really interesting documentary, <clears throat> sorry, uh, about uh, Tony Fauci and the whole HIV movement in the U.S. And you can see how he actually was involved in like creating that change for patients. So it's Absolutely. it's really interesting. But just, you know, you you talk about uh, activism and mm. I like it's it's interesting to me and maybe other people and maybe not. But. You know, we talk about like this advocacy versus activism. And I feel like when they talk about activism and I know that some some people have called you an activist and you, and you were in the HIV space. And I, and I wear that, that very proudly. <laughs> but there's that negative connotation. And I'm like, I don't I don't really know. Like, why is there that negative connotation? Is it because you're like doing these die ins and uh, storming, storming the U.S. embassy? Is that is that why there's that negative connotation? I think um, I think there's a lack. Well, first of all, activism to me is just kind of on a continuum with advocacy and with polite, polite diplomacy where you might want to start. Um, and when you and you just have to watch, you know, where you get to activism. It to me, it's the ends of the road when you've been pushed exactly up against a wall and you have absolutely nothing to lose and you don't really care what people think of you you just want them to do their job and get you the drugs you need and you'll find your own friends and i've said that many meetings so it it is along the continuum of getting what you want um i don't think we do enough of it uh these days um and i think Part of that is because the governments have become quite clever in um, purporting to make us partners with them and part of their decision-making processes. And I don't believe a word of it. Um, I I have seen it. Um, I have you know been there. I put in a million submissions for a million things uh, that we wanted to have done. And I have yet to really see very much movement as a result of the patient engagement. And so what they do is so, you you know, you're on the outside, if you like, um, submitting something to their consultation, but they keep people inside also. Yeah. And did did you feel that that was different when you were working in the HIV space versus the oncology space? I always say to my HIV friends who are still around, um, uh, wouldn't wouldn't love to go back to the place where they they wouldn't let us in the front door, and we just had to do it our own way. And that's really what did happen. The governments didn't like HIV. I mean, it was not a good news story for them, and. Um, and but they didn't like us either. And lots of people wouldn't vote for them if they, you know, started acting like they cared about HIV. So in my view, they did the smartest thing of all, which is they created the national AIDS strategy and then they handed it over to us. Literally, I, I, I sat there and helped them divide up the money they gave us into prevention, treatment. We'll spend this much on this. We'll spend this. Did we know? 
absolutely not. But at least that's what they did. And then they said, great, go forth. And and they really left it to us to do most of the heavy lifting. And and I think we did a very good job. We also were fortunate that the researchers and clinicians stood with us. Um, we all knew that none of us knew the answers to, to HIV. We didn't know what it was. We didn't know how it was transmitted, you know. So so there was nobody who could pretend, you know, that they there's humility. There was humility across the board. Um, and that really helped to create conversations and ideas. And um, somehow that's been lost too. Uh, and I think that's that's a big difference um, between uh, today and and then, then and now. Um, so uh, if what I just assume, yeah, that we were dealing with the, it, I mean, now all we have are layers and layers and layers and layers of bureaucracy. And frankly, a lot of them, I think, are doing the same thing or could certainly be consolidated to take out a lot of the administrative and red tape that's involved with them that don't add value. You only need to do them once. You don't need to do them six times in six different organizations. Um, and that would be a very good thing. So, so yeah, I think it was a better time in many ways, for sure. So it sounds to me like in the U.S. there was really this big HIV movement to make things happen for people to just live versus in Canada, it was like they just wanted to keep it quiet. But I feel like what happened in the US is like really drove significant change in healthcare for patients and not just in the US, but in Canada now, then in Europe, like across the globe, what what happened in? Yeah, and I, I, I think you're mischaracterizing a bit. Um, those of us in Canada and all the other countries that mm -hmm. cared about this did come together yes. and act up, uh, which I show my, you my act up T-shirt um, uh, was the catalyst because they're the biggest country. They had the most money and those people. And, you know, and it was also, let's face it, it was a country that had well educated people generally and people with access to funds and to you know a good education and all the things so they we were really, getting hiv yes that, yeah, yes we because that was in the early years when we didn't know how, how it was transmitted mm -hmm. so a lot of people you know very well-known people um uh, were getting hiv even people in the you know in, in the american civil service and government and everywhere else so um, that so so they had more resources, but I assure you, we all joined mm -hmm. in this, and we actually cared about the world, which is another thing that's changed so much. Mm -hmm. It might be hard for you to believe, but once um, we were we were offered a clinical trial in Canada that we know would have saved lives because it was this combination therapy. And they tried to negotiate with us only a few spots for people on compassionate access. And we told them they couldn't do their trial in Canada if they didn't do better than that. So we had a day-long negotiations. They finally gave us some reasonable spots. And we said, that's great. You know, go ahead with your trials. And mm -hmm. I mean, and we were putting our own lives 
literally on the line because yeah. some of us really needed those drugs. But it was it really was that kind of her heroism that I haven't seen much of anywhere else. Um, so um, and we actually argued for higher prices of drugs in North America and Europe so that people in Africa and other, you know, third world countries could get them for less money. I can't imagine that happening today. I just can't even think of it. But but we really did. And um, and at that point, our governments weren't fighting it. But remember, we were really relatively a small group of people. So, you know, we probably weren't a big blip on the budget, you know, um, as, as far as they were concerned. So, yeah, so so I stuck with them. I traveled all over the world. I've, you know, done advocacy, ad activism and every other thing um, in uh, everywhere, really. Uh, Louise, yeah. you and I have had a lot of conversations about this off the record. Um, yes. About this urgency with HIV that we don't see in cancer. And why do you think that is? Um, I think there are a few things that, um that are that are different number one um there were very mostly the people who were dying of hiv were young people uh, i think the youngest other than pediatric hiv i think the youngest friend of mine who died of hiv was 20 years old and um and of course then there was also pediatric hiv which is a whole other story well it's the same story but another story um but uh, I think that that, yeah, just the, we were losing a, literally a generation of young people. And I think even those who didn't like us very much, for them, at least that resonated, that, you know, that we were really going to, we were really losing. And they didn't understand it. So was it going to go from the young people to the older people to the, where was it going to go? You know, how big could this really be? So I think there was a lot of, of fear about about that. Um, but I do think the, a, the, the age of the people made a difference. I think the other thing that I really believe is that most of the people and who got HIV were gay men. Let, let's face it, a lot of them were gay men. Okay. And gay men had at that time, they can speak for themselves today, but at that time, they had a very interesting relationship with um, society. On the one hand, they knew society hated them, that they were stigmatized. They're still being stigmatized on our television today, if you can believe it. Um, they were stigmatized. No, you know, nobody cared about them except each other. Um, and and so they were on their own. They knew if anything was going to happen, they were going to have to make it happen. But the other side of the coin, which is very interesting, was they were very much well-educated people, people had a lot of money, uh, people who, and therefore, people who had an expectation that, that, that society owed them something. We pay taxes, we, you know, we're part of that kind of elite, and don't tell me that I'm not entitled. So there was a sense of entitlement, the ability to advocate for that entitlement because of their educational and other skills, um, and the fact that there were many young people dying. Um, and, and I think those three went 
you know, well together. So the really, the really um, well-educated ones who could be the voices of the others used, and I say that in a really good way, the all the people behind them who couldn't have voice because they were too sick or didn't have the, the skills to do it. But it was very clear that, that the leaders were supported by the other people. So they weren't going to, you know, when they went screaming for drugs, the rest of them didn't say, oh, no, no we don't care about drugs. You know, there was like there was solidarity, solidarity, mm -hmm. um, complete solidarity and solidarity with the researchers and the clinicians. It was it was all everybody was in. Everybody was in. So I think that's really we don't have that in oncology. Right. Um, maybe it's because there are so many different types of cancers. Um, I have a hope that as we learn more about precision medicine and we learn more that it doesn't matter about your cancer. This is what I'm being told. I'm not the scientist. But if what I'm being told is true, that it doesn't matter what kind of cancer you have, but it matters your genomic sequencing, the mutations that you have as to whether you are a candidate for a type of cancer or you are likely to be successful or unsuccessful on a type of cancer. Yeah. I'm hoping we'll come together more and realize yeah. it's not one disease against another. I was well, as you were talking that that thought occurred to me that in HIV it was just the one disease there's no variation of that one disease whereas in cancer there are so many different uh, tumor sites that and although like you said with precision medicine it could be in a different tumor site but with the same mutation so essentially mm -hmm. it's the same cancer that's that's right but Going back to something you said about about fear, and we we saw that fear with COVID, and we saw that same urgency in HIV with COVID that we are still not seeing in in cancer. And another thing that you said that I thought was really interesting was that with the with the age that because they were they were so young, uh, being diagnosed and dying um, <clears throat> with HIV and subsequently AIDS. But with COVID, it was the opposite, right? It was a much older population that was that was dying from COVID. So, like, how do we find that that place? Because although cancer is not like a communicable disease like uh, HIV and like COVID, it's still so it it wouldn't classify as a pandemic. But I see it as a silent pandemic because it is the number one killer of people, especially in Canada and, you know, in first world countries. Um, so, like, how do we how do we get that? How do we how do we get that urgency in cancer? How do we make people understand that we need to work together? I say we need to work together, but I mean the the advocates, the clinicians, the researchers, the government, the industry, the pharmaceutical industry. Like, how do we bring all these people together and say, like, we're all working towards the same thing. We all want to have a sustainable healthcare system. We all want patients to be treated appropriately with the right medicine. So how do we get there? Well, I'm not sure we can, um, to be honest. Um, I I think we can get closer than we are, certainly. Um, I think that patients are going to have to lead the way, uh, as they always have had to lead the way. 
Um, and because it is one of my girlfriends says, if you don't care, why should I? I mean, if you don't, you know, if you don't care what's happening to you, you know, then then I'm not at that's that's what advocacy is. And that's the difference between ac advocacy and ac activism. Advocacy in my lexicon is uh, asking a bunch of people what they need and want making sure that you warn them about the pros and cons of what they want you know you you, you can get this but you'll lose that or you know whatever it is um helping them to create a strategy and tactics to get what they want and then to work to to tactically you know move the needle um but always from a place of what the patient wants. And I think that's been one of our problems is mm -hmm. we haven't had the cohesiveness of, of patients uh, across all the cancers to say, let's stop worrying about which cancer it is and talk about, as you quite properly say, what is a pandemic? I mean, I don't care what you say. The first time I saw the, the head of the WHO get on TV in January of 2019 and say, oh, I'm not sure, it might be a pandemic, it might be a not, I thought, look, we're done, we're doomed. Um, I knew it was a pandemic, I did, I knew it was a pandemic right away. The minute they even mentioned the word, you know they're just waiting, they're just softening you up for the blow. And I just knew we were in for, a, I, I didn't know how bad it was going to be. I certainly didn't, but I knew it wasn't going to be good. And um, and it also affected in many ways everybody, you know. And so people, people changed. Mm -hmm. People, I mean, we really got down to our first level of Maslow's hierarchy, you know, food and shelter. And that was pretty mm -hmm. much. Yes. And and we really got down to that. And I think it shook our really shook our psyches up. And I have a theory which will never be proved in my lifetime and maybe not true. I believe that our DNA is actually going to be changed uh, because of what we experienced through this pandemic. We're going to see the world in a different way. And sadly, I'm afraid it's a way that's got less recognition of the value of social safety nets. And mm -hmm. it's a lot more of you're on your own. Tough luck. Too bad. You know, and that's that's a tragedy for me. It is. Uh, I, I think it takes away from our humanity. And um, and yeah, and that, that's very disappointing to me. That doesn't mean that there aren't some amazing people still doing some amazing things. And the other the other hopeful thing I'd like to say about this is in HIV, there was only a few of us doing all the heavy lifting. There really were. But we had the support of all the other people behind us. So we weren't afraid to be bold. We weren't afraid, you know, to say what we had to say because we knew we would be supported. And that, I think, is also something that has to happen, you know. Um, in cancer, in the oncology space. Absolutely. I think that we need, and I'm hoping that we're going to get, an organization like the one that I helped to found 
um, in HIV, in cancer. I'm I'm very hopeful that that can be done, and that we will get that those that feel they can take those very public roles, and then we will make sure we get the support of the people behind us, so that we're saying what you know what they want us to say and fighting for what we want them to fight for. And I think that will create headway. I think the doctors are there. I think they've had it. <laughs> I think the oncologists have had it. Um, and I think the researchers are, have had it. We do all this research in Canada and then give it away to somebody else. Um, so I think we might just be at a pivotal moment where um, we're, we're getting through the shock of the pandemic and maybe kind of coming out of our little rabbit holes a, a little bit more um, mm. than we were before. Um, so, yeah, I so I'm not giving up, but then I'm, I, you know, I'm not giving up. <laughs> That's all. Well, Louise, if you give up, then there's, there's no hope for, for any of us. <laughs> but you, you did talk about <clears throat> women, women with HIV and Actually, that's a topic that I find really interesting and not just in HIV or oncology, but I feel like women's health is something we don't really look at very specifically. So, I mean, do you do you have any thoughts? And I know we don't really talk about it in oncology, but do you have any thoughts about women's health specific to oncology? Like, you know, when they're doing research, they're mainly researching men. And we saw it again with the vaccine, you know, like they with the the whole issue with the vaccine and the the periods and the menstrual cycles and nobody really knew and they weren't really doing any research in that space. So how do you do you have any thoughts about Women's health specifically. Absolutely. I mean, we. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt that women's health always comes very much, as, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a second and a very far second from the first place, which is men's health. Um, and uh, and that's always been true. And I hope it will not always be true, but it is. And we'd better acknowledge it as women, and we'd better call it out. Mm -hmm. um, some. So in HIV, the trials of the drugs that I started to take had almost no women in them. So I had no idea if just because they were working on men, they would work on me or what side effects they would have on me. Or, you know, was I suddenly going to go a third arm because of the, you know, this, we knew nothing. Literally we were just, going off into the void. But the reality was we would be going off into the void if we didn't take the chance, right? So what are you going to do? It's a rock and a hard place. Um, but they certainly didn't have women in mind, I can assure you. Um, so, uh, And here all, we are 40 years later and we we still don't have women in women mind. Women in mind, exactly. Where, yeah, what did we learn? You know, I must say the HIV community embraced those of us uh, who were women who who joined that community and I never felt you know that I was discriminated against within that community because mm -hmm. of it but it certainly was lots less money for HIV women's needs than it was for men's needs and yes and it's still a distant second part of the problem and I and it's not to give them um you know, pass but it is true that it's really difficult to get enough people in clinical trials to try things out. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not convinced that we've, you know, that we've even tried that hard 
to get women into these trials. So, you know, you hear that, oh, I tried. Did you? Did you? I, I doubt it. So I think that, you know, right from the researchers, they just want the numbers. Just get us the numbers so we can get this trial going. And I don't think that's good enough. Um, and I think even Health Canada should be looking at those numbers. Everybody should be looking at those numbers and saying, mm, I don't think you really proved that. You proved that, but you didn't prove that. And I, I really think they have to be called on it and, and you know, and changes need to be made. Um, and I don't know how to do that, except again, with the patient groups coming together, those who fight for clinical trials, those of us who look at the trials and say, where were the women? You know, we have to make it a priority um, to understand that women are not men. And uh, we are very, very different. We're very different. Um, I was very fortunate that, you know, these drugs worked for me, but they did very different side effects for me than they did for men. And, uh, and no, yeah. And I was the first one to start calling that out. And then they, they were looking, oh, gee, yeah, that's kind of right. <laughs> you know, and and now and then it became a whole big, you know, mitochondrial toxicities and all kinds of everybody found fancy names for what was happening to the women. And uh, that was a whole other industry that started up. So, I, you know, it's it's uh, it, it it's always somehow second on the list. And that's really tragic. So, Louise, let me ask you, what are some of the pressing issues that you see in the cancer space today? Well, the most pressing issue is that we don't have a healthcare system that is, I don't even want to call it a system. We don't have a bunch of healthcare agencies and mandates that actually um, deal with the, the needs of people with cancer. I mean, we we and and we construct our budgets to match those agencies instead of constructing those agencies to match the budgets. You know, like uh, uh, it's it's a tail wagging the dog, I think. And and one of the things that um, uh, people I've always said about rules and people who other people who think the way I do say about rules, when someone says to me, can't do it because of the rule. I remind them that we created those rules because they were a facilitator of what we wanted to do. And the day that those rules are being used actually as a way to be a barrier to what we originally put them in for, and particularly since times change people, you know, we should be going back to the rules and changing them. So I really feel that there needs to be complete. I would completely re reconstruct uh, health budgets um, to follow disease paths, not uh, individual stakeholders, such as doctors, hospitals, drug companies, all of them. I wouldn't, that's not the way I would divide up the money. I would do a real analysis based on outcome, measurable outcomes by patients. I would analyze what the bundle of services are that are needed to provide outcomes that these patients need, reasonably need. And that's the way I would, I would divide my budget. The other thing I would do is I would take the other budgets that do have a profound impact 
on health, such as social services, housing, income security, wherever, you know, wherever those social determinants of health um, and, and, in, and in demand that all those budgets take into account the implications of what they're doing on health. And I would have some kind of a joint, you know, and advisory committee, overarching advisory committee um, of all of those groups that had to work together and had to prove that their outcomes measured together, not separately, uh, was was making a difference. Uh, so that's, I know that's a tall order, but we can start with some small things. I mean, we can start with looking at what federal agencies we have and some objective group of people can look at those and see the, you know, the redundancies, the red tape, the questions that are asked, asked that really don't matter, you know, and uh, and and actually create a much tighter system for us. And that money should stay in the health budgets, should not be going back to the, you know, to general coffers to build roads or anything else. We should have a roads budget too. It should stay in healthcare and it should be reallocated to the places where it, it's really needed. So I think that we need to do that at the federal level. We need to do that at the pan-Canadian level, level with our HTA, our health technology assessment bodies, and we and, and our pan-Canadian uh, um, pharmaceutical alliance bodies that negotiate prices. And we need to do it provincially also, because this is just layer after layer after layer asking the same questions. Why? Why are they asking the same questions? Mm -hmm. Can't they just get one set of questions and they'll each use the pieces of it that they need for their purposes? It's it's really doesn't make sense at all. So so, you know, I would turn it all around. Uh, yeah, which is not, you know, n most people are not most powers that be don't want that. <laughs> and uh, and most people don't understand it. So they don't even know that they want it. But I yeah. bet they do. <laughs> I bet they would if they knew. If, you if know. they understood. Exactly. I mean, re changing the whole healthcare system would be so complex and time consuming. But also probably very necessary because it's, it's clearly not working the way it is right now. That's right. But I think, you know, Louise, it'll be close to 10 years that we know each other and are working together now. And I think in 10 years, I probably could count the amount of times that social determinants of health have not come out of your mouth. So <laughs> do, you, yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about social determinants of health? Is that something that you continue to work on today? Oh, absolutely. Um, I learned about social determinants of health in the HIV community because a lot, uh, other than the very well, it was like, it was a strange sort of thing. It was either the very wealthy and upper middle class who were getting it, or everybody else way at the bottom. There didn't mm -hmm. seem to be very many people in between. So uh, when I worked with people, I worked with many, many groups that had very little access to social determinants of health. Um, and we had to help them. You know, we worked with homeless people. We certainly worked with drug 
you know, take, taking people, they were getting HIV that mm -hmm. way. You know, that, that was a, a mode of transmission. We were working with women who were being impregnated and infected by their husbands over which they had no control their lives they had no control over their lives uh, we had babies who were being born with hiv because the parents either didn't know or couldn't take didn't take medications while they were pregnant we worked and i'm very this is one of the things i'm most proud of we worked very closely with the indigenous community and and understood that they needed to take the lead in the advocacy for what they needed, but they would they would always have us there. Uh, you know, if they needed it, then we agreed they needed it, you know. And and that's so that I met all those folks way back then. I knew, you know, I knew what day it was way back then. And then when I came into oncology, I never heard it, like I never heard a thing about it. So I decided, uh, excuse me, I think somebody needs to kind of mention this perhaps. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's really become a, a very big part of my work. And every year uh, we, we do a summit, a few of the groups have come together as a steering committee, and we do a summit explaining, talking about social determinants of health. And we talk about it from the people delivering it and the people experiencing it. It's not, you know, some theoretical story. This year, we're going to have a homeless woman actually speaking about her experience of living on the streets, talking to a doctor who treats palliative care cases of people on the streets. We're going to have a mother who lost her son to fentanyl addiction, talking mm -hmm. about, you know, her work. And and I say I say to all of them when we're getting ready, promise me that you'll make the link, please. Because I know it's obvious to all of us who work in it how closely those linkages are between health outcomes and health policy and where you know where you are on that scale and and we're starting to develop a lot more recommendations coming out of our summit that mm -hmm. we hope uh will be a, a direct line between social determinants of health and enhancing people's people's health for those populations so I, I I know because I'm in the space that you're talking about the Patients Redefining Healthcare Summit. So would you like to tell us a little bit more about it? Who can join? When is it? Absolutely. So it started out eight years ago um, as uh, just a summit. To, it was just my idea, at just a summit to say, you know, I think maybe patients don't understand how our system works. Um, you know, they, they they want to, but they don't. So the first year of our summit was, here's what we got. Second year of our summit was, what do we want? And what we decided we want was a value-based healthcare system, which has a number of foundational things to it. And one of them is a, a working data system that's interoperable, accessible, um, and, and kind of one patient one chart so that you might actually, you know, get the care you need. And also that in an anonymized way, we could roll up all that stuff and learn something about certain populations that will help them. So that was kind of the second year. Then we moved into the social determinants of health. And uh, I, that was the year we also were 
lucky enough to find an Indigenous colleague who was working for one of the federal government agencies at the time and is now working for a different federal government agency to lead a day just on Indigenous health. And if you haven't, uh, every year I've been so impressed and this year I'm just blown away, really. I mean, I who thought I, you know, knew, you know, had heard everything, uh, really started to cry when I heard the first woman speak. And she only spoke for like six minutes. And really, and like, you know, I don't show a lot of emotion by a lot, and I'm not surprised by a lot, but she, it was a, an amazing presentation, and it told you everything you need to know about what's wrong with the, you know, engagement with Indigenous populations. And then she'll talk to us some more. She'll build out from that for us. But, I mean, it's just quite astonishing um, uh, what uh, what work we've been able to at least bring to light there. You know, um, maybe you don't solve it all, but at least people start thinking about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we really, be- but, but we're action-oriented. So at the end of our summit, we develop an action plan based on what we've learned in the three days of the summit. And we set up working groups. One of those working groups has created something called the Declaration of Patient Data Rights, which has now been endorsed by nearly 30 patient and patient groups, public groups, and uh, now coalitions of, of multi-stakeholders. And uh it's being very well received as a balanced, reasonable document to, to you know, that helps everybody um, both protect their data, but also share their data in a safe way. And we're very proud of that work. And that came out of the summit. Um, and we're we're really I'm, I have a few hopes for what's going to come out of the summit this year, but we'll see. We'll see. But uh, it's really um is it you learn I've I've learned so much from this summit and uh, yeah and I think we're the only one in this space who can attend the summit anybody who wants to sign up register and sign up it's uh happens the week of November 13th um and it it's three days uh, not full days three half days um the 13th the 15th and the 16th mm-hmm. and on the 17th if you're on the the if you've joined and you're a patient patient organization a caregiver uh, anybody in those categories you join together on day four only you and then we develop our action plan and from mm-hmm. the things that we've learned and this is all happening virtually all happening virtually and we get you know we've gotten thank you very much for doing that because other people are not and we're nervous to why aren't we all getting together again to why aren't we doing hybrid you know I I just believe we have to worry about the most vulnerable and and the rest of us just got to you know do deal (laughs) deal so if somebody wants to register um how do they do that so uh they could go to the save your skin foundation website at saveyourskin.ca yes and uh there will be uh, an opportunity to do that um if in fact i mean if they want to 
you know, write to me and tell me they're interested, I can certainly hook them up. But it sh you should have a registration. You'll see a registration card right there. And uh, please register. It's free. Um, we have never believed that patients and caregivers um, should pay for anything. That's another of my HIV learnings. Um, you don't ask the people who need the help to pay for the help. Um, mm -hmm. and, but we do, and we do allow observers, but, and they can be from anywhere, research, doctors, industry, wherever. But those, those stakeholders do not get engaged in the private conversations that we have to develop the action plan because I never wanted to be said that we were driven by what other stakeholders wanted. Advocacy, as I said, is about what the patients tell me they want, you know, what the patient's caregivers tell me the patients want, and that's what I fight for. And if that upsets some stakeholders and makes other stakeholders happy, that's just how the ball it, it rolls. Um, my interest, in, only interest, is in ensuring access to healthcare for good healthcare for patients and for good health systems for patients. Yeah. And so, Louise, are there any other projects that you're working on now that you'd like to share with us? Sure. Um, <laughs> so, um, I mentioned a little earlier. Uh, in, in our conversations that I really want a national treatment action network coalition. And I'm, and we've been working through Connected, um, but I think it's time that we rebrand and that we actually take on uh, some of my old learnings, because everything old is new again. And I th really think this is the moment um, to look at that, that former, you know, construct, because it worked very well. And, and the main thing about it is it that the people, it's people with passion. You don't have to be a lot. You just need to have passion. So if we divide and conquer, which is what we did in HIV, everybody took a piece prevention, treatment, human rights, we each took a piece and everybody else supported the work that came out from all of those pieces and we respected that work. I am going to be working on getting somewhere towards, getting closer towards that kind of a working construct um, next year. Um, and, and this year, uh, we are going to be uh, launching something called the business case um, for optimizing precision medicine in the wake of the cancer revolution. And it is a it is a it is the what we hope will be a foundational document. It's pretty big foundational document that all stakeholders can use wherever they are to make the case as to why precision medicine and the companion diagnostics and genetic testing and all the things that are needed to go with it are accessible through public plans for people who need them. So that's that's happening at the BioCanRx Summit, uh, which is uh, next weekend. Um, we'll be presenting on October 3rd 
the actual launch. And then on 19th and 20th of October, we're going to have two days of webinars where we drill down more into the detail of what's in that business case and what can we glean from it that we can work on together um, to, to move things forward in the short run, the medium run and the long run. So I'm very excited about that work as well. And is that available if people want to find out more about that? Is that at Save Your Skin or at Connected? Save Your Skin. Yeah. So saveyourskin.ca. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And also connected.ca. So connected C O N E C T E D. Yeah. Dot yeah. um, For the moment. For the moment. <laughs> For the moment. Um, and yeah, and you can uh, certainly uh, learn about, about that there as well. So we'd uh, we'd love to see you at all of it. And, um, you know, we've tried to pick the things that we think are really, really important. The access to the treatments, access to the treatments for everybody, which is a social determinants piece and a, con a construct of how to do all that, that really makes sense. So I think if we have all, we can get those three lined up and we can build more and get more collaborators and partners, I think that we'll be a lot closer to getting to some of the things that we need. Yeah, in the cancer space that in the cancer space. Yeah. Well, but maybe not even because, you know, HIV was kind of my uh, role, you know, role model, if you want, and maybe cancer will be a role if we do it right. Maybe other patient groups will say, oh, this looks pretty good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll take and not all of it. You, of course, you adapt everything to the world you're living in. But, you know, you got to start somewhere. So take a look at what's out there. And don't you don't have to reinvent every wheel, you know. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> All right, Louise. Well, thank you so much for your time today for the interesting discussion as usual. And again, if anybody needs more information, it's all at saveyourskin.ca. And, uh, and I'm not hard to find either. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any last thoughts? I just really want people, if they can, I know it's terribly hard when you're unwell, because I know when I was unwell, it's terribly hard to have hope. But I really believe that you cannot lose hope and that the relationship between your mind and your body is very great. And hope doesn't mean I'm going to live and run the marathon. Hope is what are the outcome measures that I really want, given the situation I'm in? And how can I best get them? So be realistic about the possibilities, but be hopeful that you can get the best outcomes possible and that things change. We, we learn things sometimes in a minute that really spins things around. So I don't want people to be unrealistically hopeful, but there's n hope is never a wrong thing to have mm -hmm. as long as you build it on the real realism of what we have today. Well, that I wish you would have brought that up earlier. We could have had a whole discussion on that, but that's <laughs> that's a really great way to end things off. So thank you so much, Louise. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's oh, been my a while pleasure. since I've been able to kind of ramble around about my past. <laughs> so it's well, kind of fun. I knew you'd be the best person for rambling. 
And yeah, well, and if you and if you're really scared, um, you can uh, wait till my book comes out because I'm in the process of writing a, a book about my life. And uh, I promise you, you'll see all the warts, not just I'm just not all showing all the good stuff, showing all the warts and all the mistakes and all the times I had to pick myself up again. So and I promise not to charge much for this book, but <laughs> I really want to get it written and I want to get it published. Uh, I, I just hope that it will be be some hope also another way of providing hope to people yeah well i look forward to reading it i'm sure it's going to be interesting knowing you and knowing the things that you have done in your life i'm i it's going to be a great read <laughs> well i hope so so thank you again and i know i'll be talking to you again soon you definitely will <laughs> thank Take you bye-bye bye